As we prepare to worship our Lord and Savior, I'll be reading from Psalm 65, verses 1 through 4. Follow that by a time of reflection and close it in prayer. Psalm 65, the word of the Lord says, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Dear Heavenly Father, our gracious Lord, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for seeing that clearly in your revealed word to us, Lord, to hearing that from your psalms just now. And Lord, we just thank you that we're able to come together and worship you with the body of believers, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we just thank you for the evidence of your power and beauty and majesty and creation all around us, Lord. This time of year just reminds us as everything comes to life, um, just about your goodness and how you renew us and have renewed us. And Lord, we just thank you as we anticipate uh, Resurrection Sunday upcoming, uh, just the bringing to life of the, the true word of life, Lord. And we just thank you for that. We pray that this morning, Lord, that you would use the worship team to just stir us up to a greater affection, adoration, and praise of your name, Lord. And I pray that you would speak your words of truth through Pastor Hexen by your spirit this morning and would land on humble and contrite hearts, Lord. And we ask ultimately that all we do would be glorifying to you. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please rise. Join us in singing Psalm 48 this morning.
Hear God's law as his will for your life from James chapter 4, 6, verses 6b to verse 10. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Receive these words of comfort from God, from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Please join me in our time of corporate prayer. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you once again into your presence, we worship you, Lord God. We bow before your throne and give you the glory, the honor, the praise that you so richly deserve, that you alone are deserving of. And we confess our transgressions to you, Lord God, admitting and acknowledging that we are sinful creatures, that we have sinned, that we have transgressed your laws. We confess them to you now, Lord, in our hearts, in our minds, and we ask that you would be merciful to your people, that you would forgive us of our transgressions and cleanse us of all unrighteousness.
Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for your grace and mercy toward your people. For forgiving us of all of our transgressions, Lord God. For being rich in mercy and grace, love and faithfulness toward your church. We thank you, above all, for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our God and our King, for your willingness to step into our world, to walk in our shoes, to do for us what we so desperately needed to be done. For dying on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for your people. We praise you. We worship you. We thank you again for gathering us here in this place, on this sacred ground. We thank you for all of the many blessings you have brought into our lives, for our friends, family, our health, our occupations. Despite the trials and the tribulations of living life in a fallen world, we recognize that for those who have Christ, we have more than we could ever deserve. We praise you, Lord God, for your goodness to us. We thank you for our church. We continue to pray for our little church, Lord. Though we are small in number, we pray that you will use us to do mighty things for your kingdom. We pray that you would use us to grow the people of our church in their love and in their devotion to you, Lord God. We pray that every member of our church would truly have a heart whose greatest desire and passion is to live for the glory of Christ. Father, we pray that you would use us to your honor and to your praise, Lord, to make an impact in this world, to make an impact in this community. Toward that end, Father, we want to pray this morning for our benevolence team, for Richard who oversees that ministry, for Jacob and Anna and Gloria. We thank you for them the blessing that they are to uh, those in our community as, as they, uh, in a very real way, are, the, are on the, the front line of battle, as it were. Uh, they are, uh, in many ways, the face and the hands of tapestry and of, of Christ in a real intangible way as they interact with people who, who need their physical needs to, to be met, and they struggle, Lord God. So we pray that you would bless their efforts, that you would use them, uh, and their ministry to make inroads uh, for the gospel, Lord God. Specifically, Lord, we pray um, for their uh, Closet of Hope uh, ministry that is ongoing now where individuals are bringing clothing for those who are in need. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bless that, that, uh, that ministry and that event. We pray that you would move the members of our church to, to, uh, to live and to fulfill that which James commands in Chapter 2, that if we see those in need of clothing and simply tell them to be blessed and warmed without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? So, Father, we do pray that you would move our church to, to want to live in obedience to your word. We pray for the blessing food bags as well. We pray for that ministry and that, uh, that you would move our members to want to to sacrifice of their abundance of blessing that you have bestowed in their lives financially, that they would uh, give to this ministry so that we might feed those who, 
are truly in need of food, but at the same time give the gospel to them. And we pray for their upcoming yard uh, ministry where they will be going through the neighborhood and seeking to help um, those who are in need of of, uh, being in compliance with our city ordinances and using that as an opportunity to not only minister to the physical needs of our community, but to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and to point them toward the cross of Christ. And so we do pray that you would bless these events, bless their efforts. Father, we want to pray for uh, our church members. And uh, this morning, we want to pray for Eric and Laura Pena. We thank you for them. We pray for their family. We lift them up to you. In particular, Lord, we want to pray that love would abound in their home, Lord. We pray that the love of Christ, the love for Christ, and, uh, and that that love would flow uh, into them and through them by the Holy Spirit and onto one another, Lord God. And that kindness in their home would abound. Father, we pray that you would increase their trust in you as a family and as a couple as they deal with various decisions that need to be made in life and uh, the uncertainties of life, Father, we pray that you would increase their trust in you and their dependence on your divine providence and your sovereignty. We pray, Lord, that you would grant Eric and Laura wisdom and Katie as well as she seeks to find a home church in northwest Arkansas where she is attending university. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would help her to find a a home church quickly where she can have a healthy accountability, where she can develop a strong um, biblical friendships, Lord God, and where there can be those who come alongside her and encourage her and pray for her, Lord. Father, we want to pray for our dear sister, Tony uh, Sorensen. Um, Lord, we just uh, pray for your hand of blessing upon her and her family. And in particular, Lord, we pray for the salvation of uh, her boys, as she likes to call them, uh, for Mike and Alex, Ethan, Uh, Lord, we pray that it would please you to be merciful to them, to open their eyes to their need for a Savior. We pray for Ethan in particular as um, Tony has had good opportunities to have gospel conversations with him, Lord, and we pray that you would touch his heart. We pray that you would soften his heart, Lord. We pray that you would cause him to see the love of Christ for him and that you do truly love him. And, uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would call him to be your own. Father, we want to pray for Tyler. We pray for his sanctification as he goes through the teenage years, which is a difficult time um, for believing children. We pray that you would grow him in his faith, that you would cause him to remain steadfast in his faith against the temptations of this world. And, Lord, we pray for Tony that you would enable her uh, to, uh, to live out the gospel in her life and before her family that she would uh, fulfill uh, those uh, words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and that uh, her husband and her, her boys would see Christ living in her and through her and speaking through her, Lord God, and that you would use her as a means of grace to her family. Father, we want to pray this morning for uh, all global missionaries. We want to pray and lift up to you all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, serving in every country and every continent, Father. Um, some of them we know through other means, and maybe we don't know them at all, but Lord, we, you know who they are. You know them by name. You know where they are. You know what they are doing. 
And Father, we pray for your hand of blessing upon them. We pray for your protection upon them as well. We pray that you would use them mightily to advance uh, the kingdom of God on earth and that you would speak the words of the gospel through them, Lord God. Finally, Lord God, we pray for our government that you have given us. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance to lead our nation and state and our communities. But above all, Father, we pray for their salvation. We pray that you would convict them of their sin and unrighteousness and that you would cause them to realize their need for you. We pray that you would humble them before your throne. And Father, we pray now that you would bless the remainder of our service, that all that we do this morning would rise to you as a sweet-smelling aroma of a sacrifice of worship and praise and prayer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you will please stand with me, take your bulletins, and read with me the corporate reading of the gospel story from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 6a. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen.
Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be with us now, Lord, and we pray that you would guide our minds and our thoughts. Lord, we pray that uh, you would grant us a spirit and a heart of humility before your word. As much of what we will discuss this morning, and in fact, much of what we have discussed over the last several weeks going through chapter 7, has been new to many of us in a different way of thinking about marriage, divorce, singleness, and remarriage. But Father, we pray that we would be a people that would ever bow to your will that we would interpret our experiences and our logic and our traditions in light of Scripture and never the vice versa. 
And so we pray, Lord God, that you would teach us your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our primary teacher and instructor. We pray that you would grow us in our knowledge of you, and in so doing that we would grow in our faith, in our admiration, in our adoration of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout most of U.S. history, the divorce rate has been steadily increasing. Of course, that probably comes as no uh, surprise to most of you. I was, however, surprised at how low the divorce rate was at one point in the United States. From 1867 to the year 1879, the annual divorce rate in the United States was 0.3 divorces for every 1,000 Americans that lived in this nation. For the rest of that century, the annual rate increased slightly to 0.7, 0.7 divorces for every 1,000 people in the United States. Of course, as you would expect, during the roaring 20s, the divorce rate climbed to 1.7% for every 1,000 Americans living in the United States. And then in the 1940s, the annual divorce rate increased dramatically to 3.4 for every 1,000 Americans. And of course, in the 1970s, the annual rate went up again to 3.5 for every 1,000. By the end of that decade, it increased to an all-time high of 5.1 divorces for every 1,000 Americans living in the United States. That's by the end of 1979. However, beginning in the 1980s, the divorce rate started declining quite rapidly. So that by 1989, it had dropped to 4.7%, which is the lowest it had been since the 1940s. However, from 1990 to 2021, the divorce rate dropped from 4.7% to 2.5%. And I need to correct myself, that is the lowest it had been since the 1940s. So from 1990 to 2021, it dropped from 4.7 to 2.5 divorces for every 1,000 people living in the United States. Now, ordinarily, we would think that that is good news, right? We would think that the church is finally making an impact on our culture until you realize that the number of unmarried partners living together in the United States has nearly tripled in the last two decades. Tripled. From 6 million Americans to 17 million Americans now living together in an unmarried relationship. So the divorce rate is decreasing only because fewer people are getting married. Now, while you would think that the idea, the practice of cohabiting together, living together before marriage is 
an obvious sin to any Christian, to any believer. According to the Barna Research Group, in a 2016 study, they found that 41%, 41% of practicing Christians thought it was fine to live together before marriage. 41%. And so when we ask, what is the problem in the church? Because that is an enormous problem. 41% is huge. You would expect to find maybe 5 or 10, 15% at most if we're talking about new believers. But 41% of professing, practicing evangelicals, meaning people that went to church weekly, thought, don't see anything wrong with living together before marriage. And so what is the problem? The problem is simply this. Preaching pastors are failing to teach a biblical view of marriage. I think throughout the United States and in too many pulpits, preaching pastors are failing to teach a biblical view of marriage. Thus, in this, our final sermon on marriage, divorce, and singleness, and human sexuality, I know some parents are going, Phew, I thought we'd never get to the end. On this final sermon in chapter 7, I hope to do just that, to present a summary biblical view of marriage <clears throat> from these two verses in four points. My homiletics professor would be proud. <clears throat> four points. Point number one is simply this. Marriage is designed to be between one biological man and one biological woman for a lifetime. It's sad that I have to add the word biological, but you do. And I'm getting that from the beginning part of verse 39. Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Now, that works both ways, and by now you should understand that from Paul, right? He says that back in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So it works both ways. Don't uh, misread Paul that he is saying this only applies to the wife. At this point, Paul doesn't feel like, feels like he has to say it both ways every time. You should understand that if the wife can't divorce her husband as long as he's alive, well, it works the other way as well. The husband can't divorce his wife for as long as she lives. Marriage is a lifetime commitment between one biological woman and one biological man. And we get that from numerous places in the Bible. But the most obvious is Genesis chapter 2. Right at the very beginning, Genesis 2, verses 26 and 27, Scripture says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, meaning mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God began with two humans, one male and one female. Not one male and an abundance of females. He did not give Adam a harem. He did not, he did not begin by just filling the earth with humans as he did with the birds and the fish and the cattle. He creates two, one man and one woman. That sent a clear message to both of them. Marriage is, this is the ideal marriage. This is the biblical marriage. This is how God designed it. And they clearly got the message because they stayed married, as far as we can tell, for 900 years. You know, if anyone should have wrote a book on marriage, it should have been Adam. How did you stay married for 900 years? But they did. One man and one woman. And the reason for that is quite simply stated in verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You need a male and a female to do that. People who worry about the LGBTQ agenda, their aggressive agenda, I always tell them, don't worry, because in time, Christians will simply outpopulate them. Maybe the post-millennials are right. It is so obvious that even... The most famous atheist, I read an interview with Richard Dawkins last week. Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist, has said that this whole notion of multiple genders is absolutely ridiculous. He was their poster child. Now Richard Dawkins is being canceled. People are removing his books because he says it is a simple observation. Um, it is a simple um, observatory fact that there is simply two genders. It's a scientific fact. One male, there is male and there is female. There is nothing else and there is nothing in between. The message was clear to the human race. This is God's design for marriage. For this reason, God says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord. That's the translation of the New American Standard, which I do believe has it correct. The ESV has a similar translation in the footnote. Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. You know, it's interesting, you study that in the Bible. There are very few instances where God says that he hates something. One of those is God hates divorce. And he hates it because, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus said this, quote, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus words it that way when he says Moses allowed you because you've got to understand that the book of Deuteronomy, which is what he's citing, is very different from the first four books of the Pentateuch. 
the first four books of the Pentateuch, all the way up to the middle of Numbers, is all given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's, it's all of the laws on sacrificial worship and the temple and all of that. Deuteronomy is a collection of three speeches given by Moses across the Jordan River from Jericho as the people of Israel are about to go into the promised land, and he can't go with them. So he gives them instructions. That's not to say that Moses is wrong, and Jesus does not say that. He is not saying that Jesus was wrong, that Moses was wrong in what he said. But Jesus wants his readers to understand that Moses allowed you to do this because he understood the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, this was not meant to be. God never intended for divorce. It was not a part of his design. Divorce is an aberration of the created order. Divorce is what sin has caused and brought into the world. Sin not only kills people, it kills marriages as well. Marriage was and is designed to be a lifelong covenant commitment. This is because marriage is designed by God to do two things. Marriage is designed by God to do two things, and we've already talked about these in the last several weeks. As I said, this message this morning is a bit of a summary, but we're also going to look at our two verses here. The first is that marriage is designed to be a reflection of the triune relationship within the Godhead. Within the Godhead, we know from Scripture that the Father determines the plan of redemption. And he gives that plan to Jesus. He gives him direction. He gives him instructions. And Jesus the Son carries out those plans. And the Holy Spirit acts as the helper for Christ. We know that, for example, from simple statements that Jesus makes in John chapter 4, verse 34. There Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish all his work. Jesus says, My food is to do what my Father has told me to do. My Father has given me instructions. He's given me directions. And my desire is to please my Father and to carry out his will. That's how Jesus lived. Jesus only ever lived to do the will of his Father. And the Holy Spirit acts as a helper for Christ and for the body of Christ, which is the church. For example, we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, that the Holy Spirit, we're told, carried Jesus into the wilderness. The Greek word there can also mean to support or to bear up. Jesus knew he was going into a difficult situation to do battle with the devil in the desert, and the Holy Spirit was there with him every step of the way, encouraging him, strengthening him, saying to Jesus, you can do this. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, 
Jesus tells the Pharisees who accuse him of performing miracles by the power of Satan that he performs miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was because of the Holy Spirit working in him and through him that he was able to perform miracles. In a way, the Holy Spirit was the wind in his sails. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we're told that Jesus was only able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners because of the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. In other words, throughout that entire ordeal, which we will be focusing on here, not this Friday, but next Friday, on our Good Friday service, throughout that, throughout that entire ordeal, as Jesus is being beaten and flogged and punched, as he is carrying his cross up that hill to Calvary, every step of the way, the Holy Spirit was the one who was there with him, encouraging him, strengthening him, and whispering to him, you can do this, you can do this. In John chapter 14, verse 16, also John 14, verse 26, and John 15, verse 26, we're told that it's not just God the Father who sends the Holy Spirit, but it is Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit for the church. Thus, the Holy Spirit submits to the will of Christ. Thus, marriage is designed to reflect the triune relationship within the Godhead. The Father gives the directions as to what the Son is to do. The Son carries out those directions, and the Holy Spirit acts as his helper, his helpmate, if you will. God provides direction to the husband in various passages, namely, going from Genesis chapter 2, to protect and cultivate the family. That is the biblical purpose of every husband and father, to protect and cultivate spiritually, emotionally, physically, to protect and cultivate the family. That is the direction that God gives to the husband. And the wife acts as the helper to the husband. The second reality that marriage is designed to reflect is the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. We get that obviously from the clearest passage on that, Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22, Scripture says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In other words, the role of wives, according to Scripture, is to be a visible example to the world that this is how the church is to submit to Christ. This is what the relationship of the church to Christ should look like. 
And how should the church submit to Christ? We all know the answer to that. In everything. Believers, followers of Christ, should submit to the authority of Christ in all things. Which is why scripture says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the biblical purpose of wives. To be a living, visible example to the unbelieving world and to the church that this is how the church should submit to Christ. He goes on to say in verse 25 and following, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How does Christ love the church? Sacrificially. He laid down his life for the church, for his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. Christ toward the church is ever patient, ever kind, ever merciful, ever understanding, ever faithful. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ does for the church. He washes her with the word of God. He sanctifies her. He cultivates her spiritually, emotionally. This is what husbands are commanded to do for their wives. This is the biblical purpose. This is the very biblical definition of biblical manhood. It is to love your wives in the very same way, to the very same extent that Christ loves his church. Marriage is a solemn covenant between a husband and a wife. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that God gave Israel to be punished by a foreign nation because they disregarded the sacredness of marriage within Israel. I just cited Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, where God says, I hate divorce. But understand the context of why God says that. You know, we quote that verse a lot, right? But what is the context of why does God say that? Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, listen to this. God says, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? You keep offering these sacrifices. You know, we're being, we're being attacked on all sides by foreign enemies. God doesn't seem to answer our prayers. He doesn't seem to be listening we're offering these sacrifices. Where is God? And we're crying and we're moaning. Here's why, verse 14. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
God was witness between you and the wife of your youth. The implication is that the Israelite men were divorcing their older wives for younger ones. They were disregarding the sacredness of marriage. And that's one of the reasons God says, I'm done with you as a nation. They offer these sacrifices and God isn't hearing them. God isn't answering their prayers. Likely, this is where Peter gets his idea that he states in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Listen, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He may have had Malachi 2 in mind. If you're not going to love your wives as Christ loves the church, do not be shocked when God simply does not hear your prayers because that's what God did the nation of Israel. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Look, I don't care what anybody says or what the world says. I'll make an impolitically correct, an impolitical statement uh, right now in that men and women are different, period. They are wired differently. They are built differently by design. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That doesn't mean she is less intelligent or less valuable in the eyes of God. Men and women equally created in the image of God. It does mean that she is the helper to the husband, but listen, men, she is your helper in the way that a surgical tech is a helper to a surgeon. She's there to hand you what you need, dab your forehead, make sure you do a good job. She is not your helper in the way that an offensive lineman is a helper to the quarterback. You get my point? Men and women are wired and built differently by design. Point number two. God allows very few exceptions for ending marriage or to remarry. Look at verse 39, second half of verse 39 of our text. Scripture says, But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. God recognizes the breaking, the absolving of the marriage covenant and thus the freedom to remarry on three grounds. Only three. Only three. The first is death. That's what Paul talks about here, right? If her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. 
But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Death breaks the marriage covenant. Because as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, in the afterlife, believers are like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. So death breaks the marriage covenant because the one who dies goes on to never remarry anybody else. And therefore, the one who is left is now free to remarry. The second reason the Bible gives for divorce is abandonment. Paul has already talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, notice, if the unbelieving partner separates, right? Abandonment does not apply to the believing partner. The believing partner can't say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to abandon you so that we can get a divorce. Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved, not bound in that marriage. God has called you to peace. Again, this is not an option for the believer. Paul addresses the believer quite clearly in verse 12. To the rest I say that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. As long as your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married, the Bible says you stay married. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he wants to remain married, she should not divorce him. But according to Scripture, the abandonment by the unbeliever releases the believing spouse from the covenant of marriage. It's right there in verse 15. If the unbelieving spouse says, I want a divorce, if they say, I want a divorce, right? Don't buy into this false teaching out there that if the unbeliever is is being unkind or, or is being dishonest or is being abusive in some way, well, they have emotionally abandoned the marriage and therefore I can get a divorce. Verse 12, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her and vice versa. According to Scripture, it's quite clear, this is not a difficult text to understand, regardless of their behavior, at the end of the day, if they say, I don't want a divorce, Scripture says you can't divorce them if they want to remain married. The third reason that Scripture gives for ending a, the marriage covenant is sexual unfaithfulness. And I'm, gonna, I'm choosing my words carefully. Sexual unfaithfulness is the third reason. We see that in all three synoptic gospels. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Well, we'll just look at one of those. Matthew chapter 5. 
verse 31, Jesus says, It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the Greek word behind sexual immorality is a really clear Greek word. There is no debate on this Greek word. It is the word porneia. And according to the standard Greek lexicon known as BDAG, B-D-A-G, it's actually an abbreviation. It stands for Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich. It's a really thick Greek dictionary. It's a Greek lexicon. They say the word porneia in biblical Greek and in all extra biblical Greek, classical Greek, means unlawful sexual intercourse. For example, prostitution, unchastity, or fornication is what the word means here. So Jesus makes clear that unless one divorces for this reason, that unless you get divorced on the grounds of sexual unfaithfulness, when they remarry, their second marriage constitutes an act of adultery. Because you're still bound to the first marriage. The first marriage has not been legitimately dissolved. So when you marry someone else, your second marriage, sadly, in the eyes of God, when you are saying, I do, is an act of adultery. Now, I want to just say something very quickly for believers in our midst who have been through that know that that is not the unpardonable sin. There is an abundance of grace and mercy at the cross. But it's important that we know that. That these are the only three reasons for which God allows divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. Death, abandonment, sexual immorality, sexual unfaithfulness. But it's for this reason... It is for this reason that Paul uses such strong language in chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Again, to the married, I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul could not have been any clearer. Do not divorce your spouse, period. If you separate without biblical reason, according to Paul, your only options are, number one, remain single for the rest of your life, or at least until your former spouse dies, or number two, be reconciled to your spouse. If you divorce for unbiblical reasons, Paul is very clear, you only have two options. You stay single for the rest of your life, or you get back together with your former spouse. Because if you remarry someone else, your second marriage is an act of adultery. God makes it difficult, right? Oftentimes, Christians struggle with this. Only three? Like, are you serious? Now you know why in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples said, well, if that's the way it is, it's better not to get married. Remember that? They said, we're going to stay single. Thank you very much. Of course, Peter's like, man, that ship has sailed for me. I'm already married. God makes it difficult to leave a marriage 
Understand, due to the high importance of marriage, due to the sacredness of marriage, because making it easy, making it easy to disregard a marriage cheapens the institution of marriage. It cheapens the institution of it. I'll give you an example. It is for this reason. Do your research. It's for this reason the founding fathers made it very difficult to remove a president from the White House. They made it easy to become president, be natural-born citizen, over the age of 35, get enough votes, right? We've ended up with some doozies because of that. But they made it very difficult to remove a sitting president. We have impeached, articles of impeachment have been filed three times in our history. We've never removed one. Why? Because they wanted to make sure that this was not an easy office to simply disregard. It cheapens the value of the office. If you can easily remove a president at the drop of a hat for whatever reason, then he's obviously insignificant. They wanted to make sure that they did not cheapen the office of the presidency. So they made it difficult to remove the president. God makes it difficult to end a marriage because of the high sacredness of marriage. It was never intended to be. Not even death for that matter. Adam and Eve were supposed to live eternally. Death ruined marriage by causing them to die. And I'm sorry, I'm going a little long. Some of you will have to... uh, run screen for me from the Sunday school teachers. If a person is married, people struggle and they ask the question then, well, what if a person is married to a horrible individual? What if you're married to someone that is just unkind, someone who just doesn't care about your feelings, someone who just seems to go out of their way to do the things that are displeasing to you rather than doing the things that are pleasing to you. Someone who just speaks harsh words to you on a regular basis. What do you do with someone like that if you're married to someone like that? Well, now you know how Christ feels in regards to the church. Because how often do we as Christians do that to Christ, our groom? We seem to go out of our way to do the things that we know are displeasing to Christ. We live our lives our way. We read the Bible and say, you know what? I don't really care, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'll just come back later and ask for forgiveness. And amazingly, no matter how often we shake our fist at the very God who died for our sins, Christ remains ever faithful and loving and forgiving and merciful toward his bride. That's amazing to me. Point number three. Marriage and remarriage may only be in the Lord. And I'll be done in about two minutes here. Marriage and remarriage may only be done in the Lord. Right? Paul says that at uh, the very end of our uh, first verse. Uh, They are free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Paul expounds on the reason for that later on in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following. Do do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What 
Fellowship as light with darkness. What accord as Christ with Biel? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? All rhetorical questions with an obvious answer. None. These things don't go together. So Paul says, look, here's, here's God's only, only uh, restriction on marriage. This is God's only restriction on marriage. You must marry in the Lord. Believers can only marry true believers. It is a sin for a believer to marry someone that is not a believer. Thus, marriage is to be, quite simply, between believers, according to biblical standards, one man and one woman for a lifetime, which means that in marriage there is no room for racial or cultural prejudice. Doesn't matter to God. Doesn't matter the economic differences. Doesn't matter the cultural differences. Does not matter the ethnic differences. We are all believers in Christ, one body. We are one people. We are one covenant community. And you're free to marry anyone you want of the opposite sex within the covenant community. Within the covenant community of Israel, they could marry anybody they wanted as long as they were Israelites. In the new covenant community, we can marry whoever we want so long as they are members of the new covenant community. Point number four. After a marriage ends, it is better to remain single. Paul throws that in again. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, right? He has already said this many times before, right? We know that. Verses 7 and 8, verses 26 and 27, 32 to 35, 37 to 38. That's Paul's recommendation. Just stay single. If you get a divorce, your spouse dies, Paul says, just stay single. In verse 40, the end of verse 40, he says, and I think that I, too, have the spirit of God. This is really just Paul's humble way of saying that this isn't just anybody's opinion. He is offering his opinion. He is offering a recommendation. It's not a command, right? He's already said that numerous times. Not commanded to stay single. You can remarry if you want to. You can get married if you want to. Paul's offering his recommendation. But what he is saying is this. My recommendation as an apostle is not just any recommendation. It carries weight. So Paul says, really consider this, that if your marriage ends for any reason, Paul says, stay single is what he would recommend. In the end, marriage, marriage is a glorious institution created by God and as an amazing blessing. It's an amazing blessing. But marriage must be entered, must be entered and lived out with the seriousness with which it was created. You don't just throw it away willy-nilly. Serious going into it, serious with living it, serious with keeping it together in a biblical way that glorifies God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from uh, Scripture. We pray, Lord God, for everyone in this room who is either married or 
thinking about marriage in the future or who has been married. Father, we pray that we would take these words to heart from not just these two verses, but all that we've learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Lord God. We pray that you would help us to have a biblical view, a biblical approach of marriage, that you might be glorified and honored and praised. We pray this in Christ's name.